What's up? Welcome to Bow Down, the teaching ministry of Pastor Chris Tress. The privilege of being here, I can't overestimate. I can't say enough because we had a, a time here uh, for the Passover. Thank you, Deborah. And so many of you who did that it was an amazing time for us. It was a privilege to be here. But praying with these three women in there also just like shook me to the roots um, because for different reasons, but one in specifically, which relates to this message, is that saying that we praying that there'll be more watchmen on the wall for Israel. Um, I'm not here to speak about Israel. I'm not here to promote Israel at all from a political standpoint. Um, I'm here to promote the kingdom of God. And what that song really that sort of like motivated me a little bit uh, this morning was uh, going back to the beginning. Not that we should reminisce and say, oh, it was so much better in the good old days. But the beginning of the biblical roots, you know, it goes way back. You know that. You're Bible readers here. And, and if, you're, if you hang out with Chris long enough, you have to love the Bible because he, <laughs> he says he's a listener. But when he speaks, he speaks as if he's speaking the very words of God. We've had this very rare, for me, um, opportunity to have several conversations one-on-one -on -one where we just sit and talk for quite a while, hours. My wife's always like, what's with this guy? You know, you talk to him more than you've talked to me for the last three weeks. But it's just because it's, it's God's doing something. It's rare for a pastor these days to have somebody speak in their absence. It's more like, you know, I don't know about you. And uh, you know what? I just can't take the chance. And I've actually had that happen to me. People have said, you know what? I think we're going to just skip you this time. Maybe next time. And that's because there's something about, it's not just me because they never heard me speak. It might be next time he won't have me back. But this time he's taken a chance, you know. And, um, but the thing is that when you say Israel, people either run this way or that way. But, and some, a small remnant, sits still and said, I want to hear what God says about Israel. I'm confused. You know, I don't want to start making an opinion that has been um, through conversations, through media, or whatever it is, and settle on that. I just want to know, why does God talk about Israel so much? Why are the Jews in the Bible? And the number one question is, why are the Jews still here? You know, Mark Twain, um, he wrote Tom Sawyer, and he's a real famous American author. Um, he was an atheist. I don't know if you know this, but uh, so he didn't believe in God, but he went to Israel back in the 1800s, late 1800s, when Israel was a wasteland. It was arid, desert, and swamps. That's all it was. And this is like in the late 1800s. And he stayed there for, I think, several months. And he said at the end of his time there, he goes, if there's one thing that would make me a believer in God, it's this, the Jew. Why are they still here? Every empire that has destroyed this land has trampled through it. Remember when Jesus said that, the, that, the, uh, that Jerusalem would be trampled down by the Gentiles until the fullness of the, of the Gentiles comes? That was like preceding his coming. There'd be empire after empire after empire just sweeping through the land, leaving it in destruction. The reason it was a swamp was because one of the customs was to cut down all the trees on the way out so that the enemy would not inherit a good land, 
even though they couldn't fight him back. Empire after empire, we could go into that, but I won't. But then when they were scattered in um, 66 AD is when Jerusalem was, uh, the, the temple was destroyed by Titus, the emperor, the Roman emperor, it was destroyed. There was nothing left to it except the walls that surrounded it. And even those were crumbling. And then in 135 AD, the emperor Hadrian burnt the city down to the ground. In the process of both these emperors, Jews ran for their lives and millions, millions of them were killed. So by the time the first century, second century is underway, the Jews are already scattered into the world, running for, for their lives. A Jewish, uh, an Israeli prime minister, Golda Meir, who some of you may have heard of, been hear of, um, she said that the synonym of Jewish is survival. It means survive. Now, look, I'm not here to point out all the troubles of the Jews so that you'll, like, get a tissue and wipe your, your eyes and say, oh, the poor pity, pity the poor Jews. Don't do that. The Jews don't want people to pity them. Israel doesn't want to be pitied. They just want to be recognized as a nation, period. And the Jewish people want to be recognized as a people, period. But this is, this is the reality. There's a question mark. When you see a Jewish person, and now, you can't say this to a Jewish person. Let me give you a little pre-warning because it would offend them. But they, we all do. We all walk around with a question mark over our heads. And you know what the, the question is? When are they going to come after us next? Because every generation was not directly affected by anti-Semitism. Today it's anti-Israel. Because anti-Semitism is not politically correct, because they're people you can't hate them politically. But spiritually you can, because the enemy knows that if he destroys the Jewish people, God is proven to be a liar. Because God said that they would always be a people and they would always have a property forever. There is no conditions to it. So if Israel does not exist for the Jewish people, I'm not saying that no one else can live there. Believe me, there's only like uh, 7 million Jews in Israel. There's only 14 million of us in the whole world. So they're not trying to take over the world. In fact, they never tried to occupy territory outside of their borders. Never. Regardless of what you heard, they're not, they just want to survive. This is just all that Jews want to do. They want to survive. Now, there's all kinds of bad Jews. There's all kinds of bad players. I'm not here to say that all Jews are good. I'm not here to say that Israel does everything right. They don't. Jews, like me, are always like, why did you do that? Why did you say that? Because then you point attention to us and people hate us more. So the question is, when are they coming for us next? And that's a reality that Jews live with. Now, I'm not saying you might not feel that in your own way for your own situation, your own background. But I'm just saying this is a spiritual reality because God intended for the Jews to be a blessing right through Abraham to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. This is what God told Abraham in Genesis 12. I am making you a blessing so that you would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And through the families of the earth, your blessing would go into the nations of the world. And guess what? You take no credit for that, Abraham. And he's like, okay, let's do it. Well, four centuries of slavery later, 
For, and they weren't slaves for the entire period of time, but they were slaves for a long enough time to know what it feels like. And God told them that. You're going to go into slavery for four centuries. Oh, that's a great calling, God. I really, I just can't wait to embrace that. You know, and, and so, but they come out of the slavery and they're still a people. They're not, I mean, they're not educated. They had no schooling except for personal things that went on in their lives. They knew how to make bricks. That's about it. And then they come out and God begins to train them by his law. But with the law came a condition. They said, bring it on, bring it on, the, bring on the law. We'll obey it all. This is the Mosaic covenant, different from the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant they were given had unconditional promise. You will always be a people, your descendants, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and through Jacob and his descendants, you will always be a people. Read Jeremiah 31. He says, if the Jews disappear from the earth, so will the forces of nature. If you want gravity to go away, get rid of the Jews. I don't know where you're going to go once gravity gives up, but you're not going to be in a good place. You'll be floating in nothingness until you're not floating anymore. So it's a, the enemy knows all that, but he also knows one other thing, that the Jews were meant to bring the gospel to the nations. In, in Hebrew, nations, the word is goyim. Goyim simply means Gentiles or nations. That's all it means. It's not a curse word. It just means people of the nations. So they were supposed to bring this blessing, which the prophets would later call the light. Bring the light to the nations, to the Gentiles. That nation, that light, that lit up at Pentecost, the, the gospel began to spread like never before and never since, as quickly as possible. And you know why? Because the Gentiles said, whoa, we want in. They saw what they had, and they wanted in. The early disciples were living in such a way that they said, we like this. It's better than we've been given through Rome and Greece, etc." And they embraced it. And then the church began to grow. Incredibly, read the book of Acts. There's never been anything like it. But the enemy took notice too. And he said, I got to stop this. Why is that? Because now they're working together as a unit, just as God intended. Why? Because together they would crush the serpent's head. Over, game's done, Satan knows it. And guess what? In Revelation 12 or 13, you guys read this. Sometimes it's the end of 12, depending on your version. Sometimes it's the beginning of 13. That this serpent, who is the devil, stands at the edge of the sea. But by the way, that's the Mediterranean. Stands at the edge of the sea, and he's furious. Why is he furious? Because he knows his time is short. And how does his time get short? Because Jews and Gentiles are beginning after 19 plus centuries of being this way, where they were this way in the beginning, and there was no force that could stop him, according to the manifold wisdom of God in Ephesians 3, which says this is God's eternal purpose, the one new man. This is his eternal purpose. So you throw the Jews out of the purpose, it's a splintered humanity. There's no peace. Have you guys experienced peace? Have you read about peace throughout world history? This splintered sense of Jew and Gentile, which was, like, which was like this for centuries before Jesus, Jesus broke the hostility at the cross, and it became like this. As the Gentiles embraced the same Gospels that was new to the Jews, 
became new to them, and together they went out into the world and started setting it right side up because previously it was upside down. Now, but Satan is like much smarter than we are in the ways of the world. And he knows that if he could bring a seed of hostility that was once crushed before, Jesus crushed it, destroyed it at the cross. He says, I got to bring it back. And how does he do that? Starting to insert what is called theology. And I know that Chris spoke about replacement theology, but that's what happened. They began this theology. They began to nurture it, cultivate it, and say that God is done with the Jews. They killed Jesus. We got to kill him, kill them. Well, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and why are they still here? There's no Israel. There's no temple. God must hate them. Yeah, let's do the work that God wants to, us to do. That's what we're here for. Kill the Jews. Now, I'm not making this up. This is in the literature of the first century. At, by the end of the first century, this was already in what the church calls the fathers of the faith, which isn't the fathers of the faith. But they were. And a lot of stuff they said was really good. But there's a lot of stuff they said that was not good. And it caused a hostility to return. And the peace that was afforded to humanity at the cross has been ruptured by the enemy of God and the enemy of the cross. And so this is a spiritual conversation that we enter into when we're believers. And the enemy wants to silence that quickly, rapidly, and thoroughly. And so if we're not thinking spiritually, and here's a way to, to know if you're thinking spiritually, if you're thinking eternally, if you're thinking, what does eternity mean? What does eternity mean to me? What does it mean to you? What does it mean if you are engaged in a positive future because God promises that through Jesus, or if you're not? Do we hate people who do bad things, or do we really think it through and say, why does Jesus say to love them? Because he thinks eternally. He knows that those bad things that people do are temporary compared to the eternity that they will suffer apart from me. So we can't push people away from us. Not that we have to tiptoe around people because the truth has power invested in it. But it has to be done in love. It has to be. And this is what Satan has done such a good job at making it seem like Christians are all mean and rotten and they have no fun and they don't want you to have any fun. They want to just bang their so-called truth into you and make you submissive because they've known it longer than you have and you'll never be as good as they are. And that's the picture that Christians have. And I'm, let me just say this. In some ways, it's deserving. In some ways, we deserve that reputation. Now, I don't believe that's here. I honestly don't. I'm not saying this to flatter you. I just walked into this place and felt the presence of God and the, and the welcome from your people. The few that were here in the beginning um, just, just felt the spirit of hospitality and, and warmness and welcome. I don't feel that everywhere. And I'm not saying go by feelings, but the reality is who we are, you know, we can't hide what's in our heart. It just it comes out, which is good if your heart is good. If not, it's not too welcoming. I don't know if I'm done yet. Is my time up? <laughs> um, but I know I hadn't even started. Um, but the, th this is what God put on my heart 
about this message. Now, Revelation, you know, is a difficult book, and I don't claim to understand it, but I do read it and read it and read it over time because God promises a blessing just for reading it. And so it doesn't say you have to understand everything it says, but you will, we will understand more and more as we read and study it. So, but, but I, I, the number one, Steve, um, Chris said, I want you to speak about 144,000. I said, that's a number, that's like math. You know, I don't think anyone hears about math, especially my children. I was, we homeschooled for a while, and they hated me because I was the math teacher. <laughs> so I don't really want to come here and speak about math. But, um, but the, the, the thing is, I've heard commentaries about the 144,000, and I've read some, and um, most of them are like, um, fall into these three categories. One is... Well, the 140, the Jehovah Witness, you may or may not know this, felt that they were the 144,000 for a while. Now, they're fairly new in the game, you know, 19th century, late 1800s, early 1900s. Some of you might have come out of that. I don't know. I know people who have. Um, but they believed they were the 144,000. They were the chosen ones, and when they, when they got filled the earth and they would go to heaven and the rest of the earth, that's up to you, whatever you want to do. But... Um, but so that kind of faded away, and they, they no longer think that way. But there's other commentators that say, well, the church has taken over um, Israel's place, replaced Israel, because God no longer needed them. They screwed up. It was a failed experiment. You know, God tried his best with the people. It didn't work. But now he's got the church, and we're, we got it made. We're the ones. We belong here. The Jews don't. We, the 144,000 means that it's just a symbol of the fullness of God's body, his kingdom, and, and we're a part of that, the 144. So it feels good. And then, but the third, the third group says, that's something in the book of Revelation that is future. Christians don't have to worry about that because we'll be gone. We're going to be raptured. We'll be up in heaven, you know, having a feast for seven years, and God's going to be destroying the earth, and whatever Jews are left, that's, that's really going to be hard for them, but don't worry about it. At the end of them, a few will get saved. 144,000, so God's got that under. Wow, that's really kind of God to save 144,000 Jews after suffering for 2,000 years at the hand of the church, mainly. I hate to say that, but it's history. Listen, if you can't afford that book, it's $12, um, the second one that Chris talked about, inappropriate, please take it. I don't have to, enough, but take it. Because in there I chart, not a lot of it, I'm not trying to bring sympathy, about church history. This, the expression in Israel is that the Jews know more about church history than the Christians do. And that's not how it should be. So that should be a part of our discipleship because... When you're learning things that the enemy is teaching, that's not a good student. you got to get rid of that stuff. Because this is for the benefit of the world. This coalition of Jew and Gentile is the one new man. It is God's eternal purpose. It's the only place in the Bible that says the eternal purpose of God. Try and find it anywhere else but in Ephesians 3. So... 
What God put in my heart was something very rooted. And what I, that song you sung from the beginning, back to the beginning, back to the beginning takes us to the roots that nobody sees. The roots get no applause. You know, just like the prayer warriors in the church. No one's applauding for them praying. No one knows it. And I'm sure many of you are prayer warriors, interceders, intercessors. The roots are necessary because nothing can grow if the roots aren't there. And here's the thing about roots. The, the Bible talks clearly about this one tree called the olive tree that has roots, really big roots, really strong roots. The olive trees grow longer and, than other trees. 4,000 years there's a tree in, in Bethlehem, of an olive tree. 4,000 years old, that goes back to Abraham. In Greece there's one that's even older. Why is that? Because when the storms come, they, even, they go deeper. They don't run, they don't bend, they don't, they're not pulled up. When the storms of life come, this tree, and God talks about an olive tree. It's a whole different lesson and I'm not going to go into it. But Romans 11 is where you have to learn where you, what part you play in the olive tree. Because the olive tree is made of branches of Jews and Gentiles. The church cannot go anywhere, and I'll throw myself out there to the lions. I'm talking about a rapture, unless... This coalition returns that was there in the beginning because God will not be vindicated for what he started if it doesn't. That's his eternal purpose. So it has to happen. So the thing about the Jews is that they're rooted in the story, going back to Abraham. That goes back 3,500 years, four centuries almost. And they developed this sense of rootedness because of all the trials and storms of life that they went through as a people group and yet survived to this day. This is what worries me the most. When Jesus talked about the end times, his disciples wanted to know right after the Passover. They were asking him these questions before the Passover. They were asking these questions in Jerusalem. Tell us, when will this happen and what will be the signs of your coming? And he says, listen, don't be deceived. He said that three times in that segment of conversation. There's going to be so much deception before I come back that it's going to be like the air you breathe. You won't think you're deceived. That's the thing about deception. Hey, man, I got it. I know it. It's me. Come and ask me. I'll tell you. That's deception. And we think that we do not have the problems other people have or we have an advantage that other people don't. That's deception. And so how do we avoid this deception? Because here's what Jesus said, that in those days that the love of many will grow cold. Do you feel this chill in the air? He's not talking about the entire world, though, because he says this, and many will fall away. Now, who is he talking about? Because you know, the unbelievers are already, they're in a fallen state. That's what the Bible talks about from, because of sin. But believers are made upright. And so he's talking about this falling away. That's the thing that bothers me the most. And when I started to think about that, I realized that Jesus warned that in his parable about the seed and the sower. Because the second seed um, is the one that fell away. Because when, when tribulation came, the troubles of the world, the sun scorched it, 
It withered and fell away. It's the same language that Jesus uses about the last days. Why? This is, the, this is what I'm here to tell you. Is because this is a strange concept. This is what Jesus said. It's very easy to overlook this in the sower and the seed section. He said, why did they fall? His disciples want to know. Explain this to us. He said, if you don't know this parable, you won't be able to understand any of them. They said, well, tell us, what does it mean? Do you know what it means? He said, because, you have no, because they had no root in themselves. So you, this is how I picture this. Because this broke my heart. Because in the beginning, when I got saved, I thought I was the only Jew in the world, in world history, that ever got saved. Because I didn't know any. I got saved on my kitchen floor with my wife. And she got saved soon after that. I'm like, what is this about Jesus? It's, why did no one ever tell me about him? And no one ever did. No one ever shared the gospel with me. I was 29 years old. And so, rootedness. They had no root in themselves. Jews have roots in themselves because of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God said that they're not going to leave because I have planted them into eternity. It doesn't mean all Jews are going to get saved. Everyone needs the same gospel. We've all fallen short. So don't let somebody tell you otherwise and then think, well, I don't have to witness to a Jew because they are really tough to talk to. You're not off the hook. They need the same gospel. I was upset that no one shared the gospel with me. Why? Why did I not know that Jesus was Jewish? Why did I think that he was out to get me because we killed him? And when I'd go into the bathrooms, the bathroom stalls would be carved into the stalls when I grew up. Nazi signs. Kill the Jews. They killed Christ. At eight years old, I'd see that and go, who killed them? Which one of us killed them? They want to kill us. I'd come out. No one would. Don't talk like that. And I, okay, talk, don't talk like that. But they want to kill us. And then it's like, well, who's the they? I don't know. Maybe that one. Maybe them. I go to school. I'm the only Jew in my classroom. And then the lunchroom. So what do I want to do? I want to be a Gentile. I want to be killed. So I acted like a Gentile. More of a Gentile than the Gentiles were. I was really good at being a Gentile. Because the Gentiles were sinners. That's what, I, that's what we taught. Right? The Bible says that. So I said, man, I want to be just like a Gentile. I don't want people to kill me. I want to kill people. And so anger used to fest, began to fester in me. Fester and fester. I got saved. I'm not going to go into it, but actually it's in the book that Chris did read. <laughs> but um, it was through hatred. It was through anti-Semitism. I was like, I can't stand this anymore. Why do they hate us so much? And that's when I cried out, Jesus, I don't know who you are. But if you're real, I need to know. And he showed me. I don't want you to fall away. This is what God brought me to here for. That's it. I don't want you to fall away. But you need to have roots in yourself. And those roots have something to do with the olive tree in Romans 11. This connection starts in the heart. And believers are given a heart for the Jews. I found that I've traveled a lot of places in this world, and when they, where believers are, and I'm asked to speak, only because they find out that I'm a Jewish believer. They have no idea if I can put three words together to string a sentence, but they just want to know, what is God doing? 
What is God doing in Israel? What is God doing? Why are you here? Why have we never met a Jew before? I heard one pastor said in Croatia, he said, I've prayed for six years for a Jew to come through my doors. And he was in tears because he didn't know I was a Jew until I, he asked me to share my testimony. He was in tears. God answered his prayer after six years. Why is that? Because God says they're, they're not, he's not done with them. But where are they? Why aren't they? Why aren't they all here? Because they think that Jesus hates them. And they think that he has told all his followers to hate them too. And to get rid of them however you can, some way. Not everyone's going to kill you, but they'll hate you enough so that somebody will take that hatred and run with it. That's what they believe. That's the question mark. A Jewish man told me after I worked for him, and he said, if you think that you're going to get away, because he knew I, I became a believer. In, in Israel, the name Christian is Moshechim, which means messianic, but it translates traitor. You're a traitor to your people. And that's happened throughout history. Jews were given a choice. Convert or die. Which one do you prefer? Go ahead. It's up to you. I'll give you three seconds. Be baptized. Forget you're a Jew. Everything about being a Jew you can never longer, no longer practice. Or die. Or we'll kick you out and people will kill you on the way out. Which one do you want to do? Uh, I guess I'll convert. But then you're still a second or third class citizen. So you don't have voting rights. You can't own property, etc. So this is just history. Simple as that. Don't sympathize. Come alongside of. Be compassionate. That's why our ministry is called Comfort My People. Because God said, Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people. He said that to whom? He said that to the Christians. Comfort my people. Who are his people? The Jews. Why did he say that way before Jesus came? Because he knew what was going to happen after Jesus left. He's speaking to you. I dare you to read Isaiah 40, verses 1 and 2. Over and over again, until you start crying. Because this is God's heart. It's not a commandment. When he's, usually when God says things twice in the Bible, it's like a commandment. Peter, Peter! Oh, uh, yeah? And then what do you, what, what, what? And God, Jesus speaks to him. It's a commandment. Peter knows to pay attention. When he said, comfort my people, comfort my people, it wasn't a commandment. It was a plea. A plea from heaven to do this. Don't be like the Gentiles, Jesus said, who hate them. Be different. Be radiant. Doesn't mean be a Jew. You don't become a Jew. Jews, Gentiles, male, female, slave, free, etc., etc. You keep your distinction, but you become one in the spirit. That's what he's looking for, and that's why the enemy is furious, because he sees it coming. Do you like the enemy to be happy, or do you want to make him mad? That's what it comes down to. Get rooted. Do not be one who falls away. Get rooted in the story, this biblical story, which the 144,000 I'm supposed to be here to talk about. <laughs> so in Revelation chapter 7, and I'm going to be spotty here, and I'm expecting that you'll read this. Because Chris will be mad at me for 
not telling you to do that. Um, I'm going to jump in. Revelation 7, verse 4. And I heard the number of the sealed, because God said in the previous verse, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. And then he goes in and he names who the tribes are and that there's 12,000 from each tribe. So there's very little that's known in the Bible about this 144,000, and that's where the speculation comes. You know, who are they, who are they, who are they? My question isn't who are they, but why are they even in the book? Why does, why does God take up space in the Bible two times to speak about this 144,000? It seems like, you know, we should just go glance over because it's, it's too, too unclear. There's not enough there. And, but because it's in two places, in chapter 7 and chapter 14, which this may or may not mean something to you because the chapters are not inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the numbers. But they happen to be multiples of seven, which in the book of Revelation means a lot. Because in Revelation, it's filled with objects like seven seals, seven angels, seven churches, seven spirits, seven swords, seven horns. Each one is seven, and each time it symbolizes completion. So we've got chapter seven and two times seven are the only two places where God speaks about the 144,000. And whenever he speaks about something twice, he wants our attention. So I think it's fair to say that the 144,000 is about the fulfillment of something significant, and that is the covenant, the culmination of redemption history is taking place through these people. They're taking, there's a part, a very important part they're playing. So this is good news because God's promise is being fulfilled that they're still here, that the Jews are still here. At the end of the story, the end of the book, the history of world redemption the Jews are here in a big way, 144,000. We really don't know everything they do, but we knew, do know the effect of what they've done. So the good news is that God keeps his promise. So that means to you personally that if you read something and it says something and it's, you receive that from God, that's his promise, that's his word. He will keep it. And that's one of the two reasons, there's two witnesses to establish the truth. The two witnesses are, the Jew and the land of Israel. Because he promised they would always be here. And guess what? They're here. That's good news, really. It shouldn't be something that gets us offended. That's a good news. Listen, the Palestinians, we're not talking about them. Stephen Corey, who we talked about, he's a very close friend of mine. So Chris has welcomed him because I asked if he would mind having him here. Many people won't let him come. Many people won't let me come. But we are extremely close friends, and we've done a lot together. Um, his, his ministry is one of the ministries we support. Comfort My People supports. I forgot all about Comfort My People. We were going to show a slide. Maybe we'll do it if there's time. Um, but he's one of the, the 11 ministries that Comfort My People supports. We support Messianic ministries in Israel, and you'll see that. It's very short. 
PowerPoint. Um, all these ministries we support are bringing the gospel in very creative and powerful ways in Israel. And the tour that we bring is called Israeli, with an I at the end, because it's about people, Israeli advocacy tour, because we advocate for our people just by meeting them, just by being in the land, the people you get. But we do go all to the, to the best biblical sites. We try to avoid the tourist attractions, but we go to some really cool places. If you want to get baptized in the Jordan, you could do that. Not, I mean, if you're not saved, that's a great place to be saved, I mean, to be baptized. You can get saved first, please, and then <laughs> get baptized. But if, you're, if you are saved and you just want to experience where Jesus was baptized, we try to go to the place where most people believe that's where he was baptized. Um, so it's the same water that Jesus would have been in, same molecules that Jesus would have touched in some way you're going to touch. So a lot of people love to do that. But we do a lot of other things that, that is not normal for a tour. So that's coming up. You need to sign up for that. It's going to be November 30th um, through December 10th. Yeah, the only, the only thing you have to do is have a conversation with God and ask him if he wants you to go. If he wants you to go, then say yes and believe that he will provide for you to go. Uh, that's all we ask. Okay, that's not really a commercial, even though it may have sounded like one. Um, but, so in, in verse 9 of chapter 14, we see the effect of these 144,000 Israelis, Jews, being sealed. And he looks, John looks, and he sees a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. These are from every nation, speaking about goyim, which means Gentiles, it means nations. They are believing Gentiles. They're ecstatic. Look at, look at what they're doing. They're, they're standing before the throne of the, and before the Lamb, and they're worshiping at the throne of God for good reason. Why is that? John wants to know, and he's told this because he doesn't know. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. They've come out of the tribulation. I'm not here to tell you when that was in the time of the tribulation, but it says it that they came out of the tribulation. These are Gentiles. There's a lot of them, a multitude. They can't count them. How does this happen? Well, it has something to do with the 144,000. The Jews are receiving their call, and this is happening now, by the way. They're receiving their call, and they're moving into the nations. They want to bring it out of Israel. I know believers, they get saved. They want to go into the nations. They want to get out of the borders of Israel and go tell people about Jesus. You know, in the land, it's very hard to be a believer. No one wants you to go public with that faith. But there are hungry, many, many hungry Jews that will talk to you in private and want to know about Yeshua. I've had these experiences many times. Just like me, there's a shell. There's a, 
I don't want to hear about Jesus. No way. But on the other side, tell me everything you know about Jesus. But I don't want everyone to know that I want to know. And I'm telling you, this is the population. And yet, they're scared of Jesus because they think he's going to get them. Or he's going to sick somebody and they'll come get him. So, these Gentiles have come somehow in touch with these Jewish believers in their own nations. And they started, the gospel started to spread. But it seems like, this is how I've heard it told, and it's so heartbreaking. It's like, oh, here's the 144,000. They travel as a unit. Most say that, oh, they're just going to stay in Israel. They're going to just be in Jerusalem. And don't worry about it. You know, you'll never come across one. That's not what's happened. They go into the nations with the gospel, and they don't just stay where they are. Jews do this, by the way, when they travel, young Jews. They, they huddle. They go in groups because they are afraid of what's going to happen once they leave the borders. And I've met them in places like the Himalayas and the, and the beaches of uh, India because that's where they go after they, they're in the IDF, in the army. They can't, they can't deal with everything that's happened as soldiers, as 18-year-old soldiers, men and women, and the emotional trauma. They leave. They flock to places like the mountains of, of Tibet and in, um, in uh, India, the Himalayas. And I've been there up at 14,000 feet looking for them, and I found them, and I hang out with them, and I talk about Jesus, Yeshua, with them, because that's what they want to know about. But they're going up there to find out the meaning of life. The other Israelis, soldiers, go to this place called Goa on the southern western side right along the beach, and they live... They live on nothing, because they know how to do that. And they, they don't want to find out the meaning of life. They want to forget about life could possibly have a meaning. Because they can't stand fighting people who want to kill them, and knowing that when they're done with their three years, the next group of Israeli kids are going to do the same thing, and they'll still hate us, want to kill us, and it's just going to go on forever. So they want to forget about life, and they go to Goa, you could Google blowing your mind in Goa and you'll see how blown out they are on LSD and other mind-blowing experiences because they don't want to f- think about life anymore. They do that for about three months and then is, their visa is up and they go back to Israel. And I've met them there too. And it's heartbreaking. But this is what Jews are. They're living with this question mark. Get this thing off my head. Which number am I supposed to go by? Um, the one that's ringing? <laughs> yeah, just don't tell Chris you said that. No, I, I will stop when I'm supposed to. I believe in order that way. But this is, this is the reality. That the Jews and the Gentiles come together for real. It's happening now, but this is going to be a reality that's going to take place. You could keep going in chapter, four, in chapter 14 about these evangelists. You'll see something, though, that after in, in chapter 14, after it's the same group, but a different scene. First, you saw in this, this, these 144,000. They're in heaven. 
They're amongst the angels and the elders. Then you see these, the, um, the believers from the nations, the same group before the throne, amongst the elders and the angels, worshiping God. They're ecstatic in worship. It's the same group. But there's something about that happens with the Jews is they get this, this song. It's a special song. It says that no one else could learn. And it's like, what is that song all about? And it seems like a mystery, like, wow, yeah, what's the song? Tell us, Paul, what's the song? You're a Jew, man, you must know. I said, well, I'll tell you what, what I think, this is where I speculate, I think that the song is in Hebrew, and because Hebrew is such a, long, a hard language that they haven't learned it yet, period. That's the answer. <laughs> so, yeah, just tell them that, that's, wow, that's so heavy, I, I can't believe I learned that. But here's the thing that I want to end on, and I... I'm missing a lot. I've got a lot of notes here. Very impressive. Um, but Jesus did something in John chapter 17. Now, you've got to picture this, though. And you might have to come to Israel to be able to picture this if you haven't come. But Jesus loved the Mount of Olives. It says it was his favorite place to go to. The Garden of Gethsemane. So here's the Mount of Olives. You'll see it when you can bring those pictures up, actually, and I'll talk through them rather than uh, the music. Yeah, so I'm not going to make comments about everywhere. But here you're looking from the Mount of Olives. Hold this one. From the Mount of Olives, you're looking across the Kidron Valley, and here is the beautiful gate. It's all closed in. You notice that? There's no gate there? That's because the Ottoman Empire heard about this Jewish Messiah coming back through those gates. This is from Zechariah. It's not from the Gospels. He heard about the Jewish Messiah is going to go through those gates when he comes and into Jerusalem. So not only did they, they fill it up. I'm talking about these gates are thick. These walls are thick. So he blocked it off so the Messiah couldn't get in. Then another one, another um, Muslim emperor came along and said, we need to bury our dead here in front of this. So there's a humongous cemetery that's there. It's both Muslim and Jewish because they know that it would be unclean. The Messiah, this Jewish Messiah, would not go through um, a graveyard to get in. So this, if you're on the top, you can keep going now. There might be a picture. Yeah, so that's looking from a different angle of the, the mosque. Also, East Jerusalem is mainly a Muslim city part of, the, of Jerusalem, ultra-Orthodox, ultra-ultra-Orthodox. Go ahead. And this is who I want to point out. Just You can keep scrolling. Soldiers. Soldiers. That's the Wailing Wall. You will go on a, a, the only boat on the Galilee that's owned by a Jewish believer, and we go on that boat, we go out on the Galilee, and we worship the Lord. Talk about a moving experience. You want to come just for that. Matter of fact, I think I'll raise the price. <laughs> Bethlehem is where my friend Stephen, Corey, comes from. Um, it was 85% Christian in the, up until the uh, 1980s, and now it's about 5%. And that Christian and 95% Muslim. Now, that 5% includes 
Arab Christians, which are really nominal Christians, not all believers, but he is one of the rare ones from there. And this, this is what we do with Palestinians. We love them. We support an Ethiopian ministry. A lot of Jews um, in Ethiopia uh, have become believers when they come to Israel because of brothers like Kokeb and his wife Menalu. They minister to these Ethiopian immigrants and they get saved. It's another ministry in a different city we're praying over. We support. This is the ministry that I want to just focus on for a minute. Because you saw all those soldiers, and you're going to see some more pictures at the end. But just gaze at the brothers for a minute, and then keep going. Okay, that's about our tour. Was that the... No, it keeps... Yeah. Okay, we have another ministry that focuses on uh, Holocaust survivors. And that's who you saw. We have them. They come and they speak to our group, the hotel at night. He's one of them, Misha. He doesn't, he's not alive anymore. They're dying quickly, too quick. Now, that guy, this is another Holocaust survivor, came to talk to us. This guy on the left, I was actually at a believers conference in the basement of this building. They know this goes on. Believe me, they try to interrupt it, the, the, the ultra-Orthodox. This guy snuck in by himself, and he just came up to me. And you know what his first question was? Is your mother Jewish? That's what he asked me. That's the first question. Sound strange? Why would somebody... Has anyone ever asked you that? Oh, yeah. yeah? Oh, yeah? All right, good. Because if your mother's not Jewish, you ain't Jewish. Exactly. Yeah. At, according to the rabbis. Yes, according not according to the Bible. But according to the rabbis, that's right. So that's why he asked me that. Because the next question he was going to ask me was about Yeshua. That's why he come. You know, Nicodemus, when did he come to Jesus? Why is that? He didn't want anyone to know. But what did he do after Jesus died? With Joseph of Amarthea, another Pharisee. Yeah, they took care of him, his burial. This guy came, and he's smiling because he knows no one sees him. I asked if I could, take, if I could have his picture taken. He goes, go for it. And so we talked about Yeshua until he had enough. <laughs> but he left smiling. That's the amazing thing. I've had him be very, very angry at me, believe me. Misha. Oh, he's not Misha. We saw Misha. This is another ministry we serve, um, pro-life ministry. They save, and this, this, this statistic has gone up, one baby a day. They don't just you know, have an ultrasound, have a little conference. I love pro-life ministries here. I love them. My wife served doing ultrasound for um, a pro-life ministry for many years. Um, they have invest in a mother and the baby for a year after that she has the baby. So it's leading the whole pregnancy. If a woman chooses to save their baby, they promise to come alongside of you. After, one year after, they bring furniture, three pieces of furniture, all the diapers, all, if you need uh, formula, by the way, if anyone needs formula, go to Israel, they have formula. Um, <laughs> and so they, they give you everything the baby needs for a year if you can't afford it. And it's not just, okay, here you go, here's the stuff, get out of here, is they come alongside. For one year, they develop a very personal, intimate relationship. She's an amazing woman. 
And so they, I asked her about you know, the numbers, how, how successful every, so it, it averages to one woman. They say you save a child, you save a mother, you save a father if he's willing to be, stick around because they're so intimate and, and the love of Jesus, it's just so real. One a day. Okay. This is another ministry. They had an outreach. 1,800. Unheard of before. 1,800 unbelievers they took, and I can't go into details, but this is bus, 35 busloads that they paid for to come to a location where they would be outside of their community and hear the gospel for the first time. These are Russian and, and Ukrainian immigrants. And almost every one of them stood up when they said, would you like to receive Yeshua as your Messiah? Unheard of since the first century. This is an outreach that they have to the immigrants every week. All week, they're giving out. That's... Go ahead. There's the Jordan. And this is from the Mount of Olives looking over to uh, Jerusalem. And that's it. And I think I'm finished. Um, there's much more. And, uh, but I don't want to get fired. <laughs> Bless you guys and pray about coming with us, okay? But pray even more about this. Okay, God, I've heard enough. What do you want? What part do I play? What does the Jew have to do with me? What does Israel have to do with me? Try to forget the things you've learned and ask God to teach you fresh. And if he's already taught you that you pray for the peace of Jerusalem, God says, give him no rest. God says this to you. Give me no rest until I establish Jerusalem as a place of praise. That's your job. Bless you and thank you so much. Thanks for visiting us today. Make sure to check us out online at www.bowdownchurch.com.